Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brad from Heinemann. Today on the Heinemann Podcast, does the design of an assignment impact the quality of a student's work? Jim Burke is the author of The Six Academic Writing Assignments, Designing the User's Journey. In his book, Jim investigates writing assignments from hundreds of classrooms to identify what's useful and what's not. What he found is that the overall design of an academic assignment, from the layout to the words used, is critical to not only how well a student performs, but how they continue to learn throughout their academic journey. By taking a user's approach, Jim suggests that we can design better work for our students. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim to learn more about what makes a good assignment. Our conversation begins at the start of Jim's investigative journey. Well, it's an interesting moment because, you know, first of all, there's no more important place in a teacher's life in the morning than the copy room. And so you go in there and you're standing in line and and I'm looking at all the stacks of, of things that people have copied. And at some point I realize that the handouts are like a really big deal because you're in there and you're copying this and you're going to take this back and put this in a kid's hand. So, you know, so everybody's got their textbooks, everybody's got, the, you know, all this material they've bought that the district has paid a lot of money for. And then here's the teacher basically saying, like, I had like, here's this workaround for teaching this content or, you know, I don't think the textbook is accessible or interesting. As I'm standing there, I'm realizing that the handout is really like the secret operating system of the classroom. Like, like a teacher is going to go back and they might say, put the textbook away. This is what we're going to do because that's that's why they're there at 7.54 before classes started at 8. And so I start looking at the different handouts around me, not just, you know, not for any subject. And I and I happen to pick up one, you know, which is kind of right there. And I can't remember what the subject was for, but it was, it was there was a timed element to the writing aspect of it. And I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it from the perspective of the layout of the page. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it from the choices of the fonts. I'm looking at it from the writing. I'm looking at it from the actual cognitive processes that are knowingly or unwittingly embedded into the assignment. And I'm looking at the fact that it's timed. And my first thought was actually like that if you put this in the hand of a kid, like it was an English learner, they would fundamentally get less time than other kids in the class because they wouldn't know what they could ignore on the assignment because the assignment wasn't kind of designed in that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot of unclear language. So suddenly I'm standing there and I'm realizing that a, a handout is not just like the secret operating system in a class, but it gets into becoming almost like a social justice issue. Like mm-hmm. you have kids by virtue of just this handout who are going to get less support, less time, and therefore increase the likelihood they're not going to do as well on an assignment in a class, and so they're going to go lower grade than the kid who understands, like, oh, that first part is just nonsense, just cut straight to the directions. Mm-hmm. When we think about design, when we think about friction points, 
where do these writing assignments tend to go astray? Well, you use that word friction points, and maybe it's a good place to clarify that. That's a really interesting idea that came up, and it comes up both in good ways and in, and in bad ways. So the first time I ever heard friction point used was there's a program, it's a research program for kids to use. So I had a chance to talk to one of the designers, and I said, why does it keep popping up to force you to like re, you know, re-enter your research question? He goes, oh, that's that's just a like a friction point, and he kind of kept moving on. I said, no, no, wait, wait, like, I, I want to, like, that's really interesting. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And he says, it's just a thing you build in to force somebody to kind of re-remind them of their purpose. So that's a positive friction point that is intentionally put in to achieve an effect. A negative friction point would basically be all the different things that, that you rub up against that cause friction that undermines the learning. So the clarity of the language, the clarity of the font, the readability, the interface of the computer. If you're using an app, if you're going to some computer program that they don't know how to use it, then that's another you know, it's a negative friction point that's between them and the learning they're trying to do. And so it's just going to further undermine. So that whole idea of just a friction point itself, I think, is really interesting. And whether you're intentional, just something we can talk more about, but in design, that idea of being intentional, I'm going to build this thing in to force you to restate your research question versus unintended. For example, you started going through all these different handouts that I looked at over the last couple of years. And you look at how many different mental processes over the course of a, of a single handout can be asked of kids. It becomes overwhelming because we're just not realizing that sometimes in a single question, we're actually asking a kid to make eight different fairly demanding, sophisticated cognitive processes when we think we're just asking them to summarize the passage or something. I mean, a couple of things we should, we should talk about with when it comes to design. One... It's just a word that's getting used all over the place. It's clearly become, you know, a, a very buzzy word for, you know, for a lot of good reasons. But, you know, one of the things, I mean, if we were going to quickly sketch out the idea of, of, you know, design thinking as a process, we mainly see it sketched out as starting with understanding or empathizing with who the user is of whatever it is. I mean, it really changes your thinking just even as an author. Like, like somebody is going to use this book, and if I don't write this book, with the idea of, you know, the teacher's time and, and how they're gonna how I want them to use it in mind, then it's probably not gonna be very useful to them. And even though we're talking about like designing academic writing so it's really there's no point uh, in the book at which it's not talking about the, the simultaneous integration of, of reading, right? Because at, at the fundamental heart of, of all these academic writing assignments is the idea that kids are pretty much, in this context, writing about texts of one sort or another. So then you get to this part that's called you know, generation or iteration. People call it different things. But you're basically generating as many different possibilities for the assignment as possible. And then you pick one. And then you, you develop a prototype, and then you test it, and you see how it plays. And then if it seems like a viable model, then you go back to fixing what didn't work and building on what did. Uh, and so you're just kind of getting into this whole cycle of revision. But I think one of the things that the design process encourages you to do is like to be super intentional up front and really invest in the time to develop that assignment as an experience, you know, this idea of the, the user's journey through the unit, what it challenges me to do, I feel, is to come back and keep trying to make it better because you're just, in a sense, you're, you're in this ongoing process of looking at each assignment as a prototype that can be improved to better try to meet all those kids' needs. And the other aspect of it, going back to your question, is 
you know, I just marvel at how each year just kind of has its own flavor. You know, you mm-hmm. part of you would like to think like, all right, I've got this assignment. It's perfect. It's great. And then, the, you know, the next year you come in and, you know, like last year I had like over 20% of my kids, you know, had IEPs or 504s or some kind of special needs. And there's probably, you know, 8% more that don't have those things on paper, but they still have those needs. And then the next year you get a class that has none of those kids or they have a whole different set of needs. And so to be able to be, you know, kind of in there and, and kind of in that responsive nature, you know, I think the design process is really, it's kind of an agile, responsive process, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is probably why there is a legitimate basis for people being so interested in it because mm-hmm. this is this is kind of the way we're living in the world these days. Like the conditions keep changing. And, you know, I, I talked briefly earlier about the idea of constraints. One example that I talk about in the book that I, that I think is really interesting is I'm in the copy room one day and I see, uh, a handout for Lord of the Flies. And uh, so I don't know, let's say there's 15 chapters in Lord of the Flies, 20 chapters. And so here's this handout for chapter three, and there are 10 questions for this homework assignment, which at least it seems to me like it's supposed to be done that night. So I, you know, sneak a copy and then I take it home and I look at it and there's actually not 10 questions, there's 30 because it's one of those deals where like, question number one, who's Piggy? What does Piggy represent? And how would you describe Piggy's relationship with the other kids in the island? Well, so you have three questions that are all like Russian dolls nested <laughs> under number one. Yeah. And each of them gets progressively, you know, more cognitively demanding. If you just had those three questions that are hidden under number one, if you, if you actually wanted the kid to go home and write, you know, at substantial length and depth, that would be enough. What you end up having is 30 questions that are that are disguised as 10, and they all kind of do that same thing. And this is just for chapter three. And even I look at these, and by the time I get to the bottom of this one, I never want to look at Lord of the Flies again. And here comes chapter four yeah. and chapter five. Like, don't ask 30 questions. Don't ask 10. Ask, you know, ask five that are all good and all function at different levels and let kids choose three of those five that they want to write about in some depth, then you've got a little more choice. Yeah. You know, they're all aligned with different standards. So you win by, by whichever entry point, but then you get a little more of a sense of choice. And then kids are more likely to do the work and do it at a level that's, you know, that's likely to pay off. Otherwise, you know, it's just something to be, to be gotten finished, right? Yeah. And gotten rid of. It's just busy work at that yeah. point. You mentioned the handouts that you went through, and I know you, you kind of went through a journey through this book in terms of you traveled around, you talked to a lot of people, you did a lot of reading of many handouts. Talk a little bit about that process that you went through that sort of led to you coming to these six assignments. Well, it was just, it was such a window onto our work, right? I mean, going back to that idea of like the secret operating system, it became kind of first started at my own school, got a little spyish, which I <laughs> have intended to do at my own school, try to keep a low profile as an author. But, you know, teachers are always leaving copies around. They don't take the original out of the copy machine or whatever. And so I just started kind of looking around more and more, whether it was in my department or others. So I just kind of started collecting them. I would look at the directions, look at the, the kinds of questions that were being asked. I might know that this person teaches this class and this person teaches the same class, but they're giving different handouts. So is there a consistency of language? Mm-hmm. You know, is one assignment asking a kid to make a claim and is the other one asking kids to develop an argument? And, you know, so do you get what some people call this this volleyball effect where different terms are used to kind of bounce kids around and cause a lot of unnecessary confusion? You know, like, I'm not going to go to the teacher and say, like, hey, I stole a copy of this, your, your handout. Like, what did you do next? <laughs> but, what, but what often became clear to me was a lot of these 
uh, assignments and from teachers that I saw around the country where they would walk kids up to a certain point and then the next step would be the point that would really make the, the greater cognitive demand. So an example would be, and the, and the assignment wouldn't include it. So you start looking at the handout, the assignment, you know, telling the kid how he wants you to take notes, so kind of doing a bit of a right to learn thing as they're doing the experiment. And then I'm looking for like, do you then have them synthesize all that into some kind of a lab report or something? Mm-hmm you know, or even just write a brief summary of what they found and why it mattered. And a lot of times it seemed like they wouldn't do that. So one of the really interesting terms that I came across during the research was Ernest Morell talks about uh, the extent to which we're really good at, at working towards the inspiration point, which is like getting kids engaged. Mm-hmm. But we've got to bring them up to and through the perspiration point. And so what I started doing at that point was saying, send me your assignments it was a huge transformation for me just in terms of going out and, and working with schools and with teachers. You can't really do that at a conference. But I would. But what I would say if, if I was going to a district or a school is to have people send me representative assignments, whether they, they're like their assignments that they think are really some of their best, they, they mm-hmm. think they really get good results or whatever, and then reorganize the day around some of these key principles that, that I began to discover that were that were fundamental to you know effective assignments and have them go back into their own assignments and, and basically kind of do this reverse engineering mm. and break the language and the design of their handouts and all that kind of stuff down and make them more aware of just how many things were going on and you know, sometimes people just wouldn't realize how many different things they were asking a kid to do simultaneously. At least if, they, if the kids were going to do them at the level that they expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that idea of gathering assignments. And then I just got really deliberate about it. You know, so pretty much every district I've been working with for the last couple of years, part of the process has been to send me representative assignments. And then when we do the workshop, to have the, kid, you know, have the students come, the, sorry, the teachers come in with their own work and spend, you know, as much of the day as possible going into an assignment and looking at the cognitive moves, looking at Webb's depth of knowledge mm-hmm. model and things like that, and really look at, you know, are they getting those kids up to those higher levels? And, you know, if we can have that conversation about our own work, honestly, I think we, you know, we basically, we're, we all realize, myself included, that, that there's just always ways that we can improve it. Did you see key features jump out at you that led to the six? So I started this inquiry into what are the elements of effective secondary writing assignments. And then Tom Newkirk, my editor, pointed out to me a book where a guy, I think it's just called Writing Assignments, where this, this guy was doing the same thing at the college level. And he gathered like thousands of assignments and broke them all down. And these were all freshman level college assignments and started looking at just the different kinds of assignments. And so you get into like short answer and research papers and things like that, which has a lot of implications for us. If we're always trying to prepare the kids for what comes up, you know, then the question is what's going on there. And then a really interesting, probably for my money, one of the most interesting reports during the time came out. It was a, a report called Checking In that came out from Ed Trust, Education Trust in D.C., mm-hmm. which in the past has tended to be much more policy-oriented. And they do a lot of great work looking at, at you know equity and social justice and stuff like that and instruction. And they started with this premise that if a state was doing standards legitimately, then 
there should be some reasonable expectation of transformation and, and gains. Mm. Uh, and if not, then what's that been all about? And so they did the same assignment, except they did it at the middle school level. So this one guy has got this thing going at the college level, and they started through this at the middle school level, and then I, you know, I started doing it at the high school level. And so they looked at, I think, 3,000 assignments, and they were going to come out in like a year with a report. And the things that they found concerned them so much that they felt like they had to initiate this report as, as soon as possible to try to alert people. So what they began to realize was that the assignments needed to be aligned with standards, whether it's from the college board or the AP program, like Calum Core, whatever, but they you gotta have some high mark that you're trying to reach. They had to be cognitively demanding. They had to be engaging and motivating and that they had to draw on kids' skills that develop the skills the kids needed to be able to work at this level. And the number of assignments they found that were meeting those criteria was just really profoundly troubling. So it's just interesting, I think, at a time for all of us, you know, whether it's at the college, the middle school, or the high school level, to kind of be arriving at this question of, you know, I almost go back to that secret operating system analogy, like, because we're all looking at handouts, yeah. basically, and saying, like, are these things that people are giving students to do, are they cognitively demanding? Are they engaging in things like that? And the, the results on all, on all fronts were, were, were fairly troubling. So, of course, one of the things that you can say about the profession right now is uh, it goes back to one of Don Gray's old great comments, which is that teachers are like five-pound bags into which people are always trying to stuff 10 pounds of grain, right? Like, so, you know, nobody is ever coming by and saying, Jim, we'd just like you to do less, <laughs> right? Like, I get 51 minutes in a class, yeah. and so there's this question of, constraints. One of the fundamental principles is when you're designing something, whatever it is, uh, you know, whether it's a phone, you've got the constraint of the size of your pocket or the, how long the battery can last or whatever. So these constraints of time and numbers of kids in classes and things like that uh, are very real constraints. So like I was never being critical of teachers, what I became interested in was what can we create that gives them kind of some guidelines to be able to create more consistently effective writing assignments that are at least more likely to consistently improve kids' ability to write well. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the six. Sure. I think what I love about these six is that they're really applicable for different subject matters. It's not just the English classroom. You really thought about science. You thought about social studies. You thought about all these different ways. And, and you put a lot of thought in, as you mentioned, design into them. So talk a little bit about the six and just sort of how you landed on these six. Sure. One of the ways to think about the six, I think, and, and it's just a, it's a kind of a gestalt, is... Uh, almost the idea of what do they call that? My myplate.gov or whatever, like the balanced <laughs> meal. We had the old the old pyramid or something like that. And so if you look at the whole kind of cognitive intellectual diet of a kid, they should be, you know, consuming a, a kind of a variety of types and levels. So the the six, what they sorted out into was the idea of writing to learn, which is writing that can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be in a journal. It's, it's writing that's often more informal. It may, may happen at the beginning of class, just kind of get people ready for a conversation. It tends to focus less on, you know, the, the style of the writing and things like that. You've got short answer, which is, you know, anything from a sentence, maybe up to a paragraph. But, you know, the kids are having to generate the language. You've got what I called process papers, which was a concept that some people grappled with for a while because they would say, like, is that like an analytical essay or, or an argument essay? And to me, the, the six aren't a rhetorical model. So... Mm -hmm. 
you know, the process paper is simply a paper that you take through all over some portion of the writing process, which, you know, Judith Langer and Arthur Appleby have found in their big study of writing that a lot of people say that they really embrace and, and, and appreciate the writing process. But when they go out and they observe them in classes in their big national study, they found that a lot of people, they have an identity of themselves as doing mm-hmm. a lot of writing process, but in fact, they're, they're not finding or making enough time in their class to be able to, to do too much of that. So the process paper is simply a paper which could be a, really of any length that you're going through all or some portion of the writing process. You've got writing on demand, which if you go back to that balanced diet analogy is you know, part of the challenge with that is that you have some people that are just wildly out of balance in their, you know, academic diet, right? Like kids are just writing timed essays. And then you have uh, research uh, or kind of long form. So mm-hmm. it's, so it doesn't specifically have to be a research paper, but it's kind of the idea of kind of getting in and going long. And then you have what I, what I called alternative assignments, which can be anything from mixed media types of pieces to more functional pieces like resumes. A lot of the work that can go on that kind of involves different forms can fall into the alternative assignments. But then the question is, what are kids actually being expected to do when they get to college? Mm-hmm. So as a father of a daughter who just finished her first year in college, I have, you know, all too clear a grasp on the demands of that. And it's revealing, right? So, the, so you know, you get assignments at the college level that ask kids to make a lot of different moves, you know, drawing out a lot of different kinds of texts uh, that are often most consistently aligned with, I would say, the the long form or the, or the research kind of paper. You know, you can't be doing all these things all the time, obviously. One of the things that really unexpectedly came out of the research was, which I hadn't been aware of until I was writing the book, was the extent to which they often can dovetail or kind of, you can kind of get a twofer. So if you have a kid write a, a time, you know, writing a demand piece, practice for the state, for the AP, whatever it might be, uh, you can treat that as a terminal assignment. Like, you got to be on the assignment. Or you can treat that as, okay, so that's kind of round one was we're just going to treat that as a practice for the state test. Now we've done that practice for the state test, and now I want to treat it as if we've got a rough draft of an essay that we can then use to actually revise it and treat it as a process paper. And that's really where the writing instruction is going to come because the the writing and demand, there's not really much room for writing instruction. The whole thing is kind of a get in there and sit and, and, and write the piece. Looking at some of the writing to learn things that you can have kids do that are kind of preparatory for the process paper, right? So you can kind of work in writing to learn things throughout. In the book, there's a big emphasis on, on what in my class what we call the expert project paper, which is this year-long inquiry into one topic. And it was not obvious to me until I was writing the book. So there's just about every type of other writing assignment, you know, out of the six that ends up getting folded into the expert project by the time it's finished. You know, the kids go out and they do original research and they've got to write up this alternative form of the executive summary. They have to write up surveys and things like that, which is another alternative form, kind of a, you know, a work-related kind of form. They're doing a lot of writing to learn in response to articles they're reading along the way. They're doing timed writing in response to books that they're reading because the project goes over the course of a whole year. And then when they get to the long form for the actual paper itself, you know, they're essentially writing a process paper, which is an eight to ten page paper, you know, for the long form for the for that paper. So that extent to which oftentimes, you know, they dovetail in on each other. At the same time, I think the idea of the six is to kind of be able to check yourself, say like, you know, we've just been doing a lot of like writing to learn lately and that's fine, but there's not a great level of accountability to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of just whatever kids want to think about that. And so how do we design 
assignments that are, if we're going to do writing to learn, there are short answer pieces uh, that are asking kids to engage in deeper, more thoughtful levels with text that we read, for example. Well, and as you, as you wrote about design and you wrote about the operating system, you really mentioned that the way the student has learned has changed a lot in the last five, ten years, and it's it's time to sort of make these shifts in the teaching to sort of be where the student is a bit more. You, you sort of wrote about that a little bit. Well, we just have so many different kinds of kids in the class, you know, and I think one of the things, uh, so one of the other really transformative aspects of the research process for the book was arriving at this idea. If you talk about design, design is fundamentally about the idea of the user, right, mm-hmm. of the thing that you're going to design. And it, it really challenges and transforms your view to begin thinking of your student as a user of your class, of this assignment, of this book, and you suddenly start looking. It goes back to that friction point thing a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the friction points for this text? It could be that there's vocabulary in there that if I don't help them you know, get a handle on, then then they're not going to be able to do the assignment that I'm asking them to write about or something like that. And so when you start thinking about your students as users, you start having to think of things from more the perspective of multiple entry points into that experience, you know, that not everything is going to be equally intuitive to the students, I think. And so, uh, so I think one of the things that this design perspective of the user, which, you know, in my class, I have like about 35 kids and I've got kids, I teach all seniors right now, so I have kids that have been in advanced and honors AP classes for the last three years and are stepping out. I've got other kids that are coming in, you know, with an acute chronic case of senioritis by the first day that are really ready to go, uh, you know, and then everybody in between. I have a lot of kids with special needs of all different kinds. And so when you take that into consideration, one of the things that this emphasis on design and the, and the user challenges you to do is to say, like, how is that assignment going to be accessible at some meaningful level? I'd much rather think about that ahead of time than feel like I'm supposed to create 15 different assignments for, for all different kids at all different levels in my class. And so maybe we can end with a story that I talk about in the book. I've, I've talked about this in other books. Is uh, I, I barely graduated from high school, right? It was like the bottom 10% of my high school class. So I was put in a remedial writing class in, in college. And at some point, I had to write this paper. And, and it, was, it, was a, like, it was like a 10-page type paper. And I got an F on it. It was the first time my family to go to college. My dad dropped out in like the ninth grade. So it was a completely foreign world to me. And the only, the only reason I could go, I think, to this professor's office to ask him why I got an F was because I was starting from this place of like, but it's a 10-page type paper, man. Like, don't we just start like with a B minus at least and just kind of work up from there? I mean, this is like typed pre-computer, right? Like, so I just, so his whole feedback was an F and it just said so in like like a four-inch big red, you know, SO question mark. And that was, that was all this feedback. And so just out of, more out of confusion and demystification went to his office and it led to a great conversation and he kind of he, you know basically my thesis was like well there's this guy named hamlet who really liked ophelia you know like i didn't know how to do academic writing yeah but so when you're so these kids that we're often so worried about if we don't take those things into consideration and designing like like designing meeting with the teacher right mm-hmm. like you're all by friday you're all going to have a rough draft and I want you to come up with me. We're going to meet even for one minute. And then you try to help kids because learning, it just fundamentally involves a sense of vulnerability. And I think writing, 
you know, more than anything, you know, it, because it's this very, very public performance of your intelligence. You know, with reading, you can say like, oh, yeah, I understood that poem, <laughs> you know, but I don't want to talk about it. But with writing, like the page is blank or it's not, yeah. you know, and so it's just a very emotional experience. So, and you put it uh, out there for the world. yeah. Our thanks to Jim Burke for his time today. If you'd like more information on Jim's new book, The Six Academic Writing Assignments, visit Heinemann.com where you can download a sample chapter. Jim can also be found on Twitter, at EnglishComp, all one word. We hope you can subscribe to the Heinemann Podcast and also be sure to check out blog.heinemann.com for more resources. Thanks for listening.